This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. The Conservative Party of Canada has a new leader. After a leadership election that made history, not just because it happened during a pandemic, but also because of how many Canadians cast ballots, Erin O'Toole is the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. What will a new opponent mean for the Trudeau government's response to COVID-19? What can we expect to see in this fall's throne speech and in the next federal budget? We'll hear from our panel of strategic advisors, Jean Charest, Paul Zed, and Wayne Wouters, about pandemic politics in the upcoming session of Parliament. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, Politics in a Pandemic. Aaron O'Toole takes office as leader of the opposition and of the Conservative Party of Canada, with the COVID-19 pandemic still well underway. Parliament stands prorogued until September 23rd. That means a speech from the throne and an opportunity for the opposition parties to defeat the minority Liberal government on a confidence vote is coming this fall. To help us understand what to expect from the O'Toole Conservatives, from the other opposition parties, and from the Trudeau Liberals in the next session of Parliament, and to engage in some informed speculation about how long that session of Parliament will last before the next federal election, I spoke to our McCarthy Tatro strategic advisors. Jean Charest is a former Premier of Quebec, a former federal cabinet minister, and a former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. Wayne Wouters is a former clerk of the Privy Council and head of the Federal Public Service of Canada, and Paul Zed is a former member of Parliament and Parliamentary Secretary. We spoke on Wednesday, August 26th. Jean, Wayne, Paul, thank you all for joining us again. Thank you. Great to be here. Let me start with you, Jean. As a former conservative leader and also a former Quebec premier, we saw Aaron O'Toole uh, take the conservative leadership uh, race after some technical difficulties in the early hours of the morning uh, and give credit in his speech, and, and commentators have given credit as well to his strong organization in Quebec for putting him over the top. What does that mean, both his strength in Quebec and his victory over Peter McKay in the leadership race for the Conservative Party and for the future of, uh, of the, the centre-right in Canadian politics? Well, it's a, Adam, it's a clear victory, which uh, in itself is significant. It means that uh, there, there won't be second guessing, as there was in the previous race between Scheer and Bernier. Uh, his victory uh, and his uh, good outcome or results in Quebec are interesting, but one thing to keep in mind is that the uh, the uh, rise and the strong presence of the social conservatives in this leadership race, and that includes those who are pro-life and the pro-gun lobby, is also going to weigh on, uh, on the party as they try to go ahead. Quebec's a good example of that. It is the gun lobby in Quebec 
that uh, organized for Aaron O'Toole in good part, and they've been out there publicly saying that uh, he owes them. And so uh, looking behind the headline, it may not be as easy as, uh, as it looks uh, for him. He's going to have to now, like the Republicans in the United States when they do primaries, after pulling completely to the right and, and speaking and trying to seduce the SOCONs in the party to vote for him, which he did successfully, now he's going to have to rush to the middle and, uh, and be much more centrist to appeal to urban voters in Ontario and in people in Quebec, and that, that'll be a big challenge for them. So a big issue when Parliament returns after the current prorogation is going to be the economy, obviously, and the effect of the pandemic and the government measures that have been put in place over the last six or eight months to respond to COVID-19. The federal government is running record deficits, multiples of what previously uh, we have seen, and the Conservatives have always had a strong line on fiscal discipline. Do you expect, as Mr. O'Toole tries to center the party and come back from, as you say, the more right-wing positions that he took to win the leadership, that fiscal discipline will be a prominent part of his message? Or will the Conservatives give the Liberals a little bit more running room uh, in order to continue the big spending pandemic response measures that we've seen in recent months? Your, your intuition, Adam, is very interesting because if you're Aaron O'Toole and you are presiding over a political party that is on policy divided. Remember, uh, the two SOCONs in this race, Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan, had more votes when taken together than either McKay or O'Toole on the first ballot. So it means a divided party on policy. And the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning this is because the economy is the issue on which everyone agrees. I expect him, and if he's wise, he's going to focus on that. And the COVID spending is going to be a big issue for them. And they would be right to do that. That's where he needs to go and focus totally on that issue and try to set aside the other issues that will be a distraction to Canadian voters. Paul, how do you think this issue is going to play out in the next session of Parliament? You've got a Liberal government that has really doubled down on deficit spending as what it describes as a necessary response to a global crisis. I don't think there's any debate that deficits are justified in these circumstances, although the the Conservatives have driven the message that this government has not been as disciplined as it should be despite running deficits, and indeed points out that they were running deficits before the COVID-19 situation emerged. Do you think that the Liberals will continue to keep the track that they've been on and maintain that deficit spending is the way to go? Do they move closer toward the center and and rein things in in order to deprive the Conservatives of an argument? Or is this the wedge with which they intend to go into the next election in terms of pandemic response and economic response? Well, there's a lot built into that question, Adam. <laughs> Sorry. But the, the reality is that we now have a more animated Andrew Scheer as the leader of the Conservative Party, um, but he is, as Jean said, struggling with the social conservatism that's occurred within his party and several times already in the last two days has identified himself as pro-choice, very much a proponent of LGBTQ, uh, already identifying with the rural parts of Canada, like Atlantic Canada and the West. So he's already doing the the juggling act that needs to occur. To your specific question, the Canadian emergency response benefit has really appealed to the millennials and the Gen Zers. And I think the prime minister is obviously going to try to continue to play to them. But 
all of these candidates that ran for the conservative leadership have said, we're going to cut taxes, we're going to control spending, we're going to fight crime, and we're going to support the military. So that is the base of what O'Toole feels that is always going to support him. But where does he move to gain support? And what will the liberals do in terms of trying to continue that wedge? So that's really the conundrum. But I think O'Toole is uh, going to do a lot better than people think he will just because he's a fresh face and people have uh, been very focused on one political party or one movement, which is the Liberal Party at the moment. Jagmeet Singh and his party have actually been kind of sidelined by the pandemic. So I think that uh, this will focus a lot of questions on what O'Toole's policies are going to be. Wayne, can you tell us what it's like inside the public service when a new leader of the opposition is elected? Is there a difference? Is the public service now preparing draft transition manuals in the event that election that an election comes in the next couple of months and there is a change in government? Is their briefing of the government going to change? Are the expectations about what the mandate from political ministers will be uh, going to change? How does the public service react when a new opposition leader uh, takes office, as Mr. O'Toole has now done? Well, it, it depends on the time frame of the, um, of the of the appointment of the new leader, um, which at this point in time, it, there there is always a potential election on the horizon. So transition, as you say, transition briefings will be the order of the day, um, because uh, if, for example, once the House comes back, there will be a speech in the throne, and there'll be a confidence vote on that uh, on that speech in the throne, and the government could in fact lose on that, and we're back into an election. And then, of course, uh, the Conservatives and the new leader, um, Mr. O'Toole, will then will will then become a potential um, new uh, governing party, and so the public service needs to be prepared for all eventualities. Uh, as a result, they will be looking, therefore, at uh, his positions and his policies as they, uh, as, as they evolve. Uh, so it's, it is a critical time now for the public service to uh, hear the new leader, hear what his positions are, and be prepared to um, serve this leader in the event that uh, there is an election and the Conservatives Come out the winner uh, following that that election. So, so yeah, it is it is a it is a time for that reflection, and so they'll be watching very carefully uh, his position on various pieces of legislation, um, and of course on this issue that you just uh, questioned us on, and that is the the level of the deficits and debts and uh, how they may position themselves on that. When public service officials begin turning their minds to transition briefings, as you say, particularly in a minority parliament situation where an election could come at any time and there could be a change in government without the the typical lead up to a fixed election that we've seen in the last number of years, is there going to be any seepage of the public services thinking when they're doing the work to prepare a transition memo and think about what a new administration could mean? Is there any of that potentially leaking in to the advice that is being given to the current government? Or are they 
are the the thought processes that go into advising the current government and preparing for a potential new government kept completely siloed from one another within the public service? Generally, they're they're uh, kept completely siloed. I, you know, there isn't a lot of seepage going on, but there are issues that both, of course, all parties, certain issues, all parties need to have a view on. But generally, the public service looks at uh, the views of that on that particular issue of the Conservative Party and uh, tries to assess uh, how the party will respond if they are in government. And that is often looked at differently than uh, if, for example, the Liberals who are in power, how they are positioning themselves for that particular issue. The difference may be uh, right now is that, of course, the public service will be working with uh, the prime minister's office to prepare a speech from the throne. It's a minority government. Uh, in order for the government to stay in power, they need support of um, uh, one or two of the opposition parties, at least one. And there may be some measures that uh, Mr. O'Toole and the uh, Conservative Party, um, there may be some measures that the Liberals are prepared to put in the speech from the throne that are, that are acceptable to the Conservatives. And so there were, there were you could see some uh, Seepage into the work and the speech of the throne and what the conservatives may want by way of some speech in the throne commitments. But that would be one area. Right. So, Jean, there is a confidence vote upcoming in the early weeks of the new session when the throne speech uh, is put to a vote in the House of Commons. We've already heard from Monsieur Blanchet, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, that they intend to vote against confidence in the government, to vote no confidence in the government, unless Mr. Trudeau resigns, which does not seem likely to happen. Uh, the NDP, as Paul says, may not be in a position to force an election because they just might not have the financial resources to wage an effective campaign and just aren't on the political map sufficiently to feel good about their chances. But leaving aside the prospect of the NDP propping up the Liberals, do you see any possibility of Mr. O'Toole's Conservatives voting to keep Mr. Trudeau in office or is a Conservative vote against the throne speech a foregone conclusion? Well, and Adam, in the, in the spectrum of op options for Mr. O'Toole, there's also the, op the option to not show up for the vote. And it may sound technical, but it isn't in the sense that they, they, they would not bring the government down, but just not show up and allow it to live another day. One of the things that uh, Aaron O'Toole has to uh, keep in mind is that coming out of a leadership race is a moment uh, of instability for a political party. Uh, they need, he needs to, and that has to be his first, very first priority. Uh, he needs to unite his party now, which isn't uh, a given, given uh, the uh, deep divisions within the party, the loss of Mr. McKay. And if you're the government, uh, that's a, an opportunity because there's been many stories, many, and I've been involved in some of those campaigns where your adversary goes early because you are not prepared or you right. go early because they are not prepared and that's a real advantage, especially in an environment where running a campaign in a COVID world is un, has not really been done before. They must all have their eyes on the election campaign that's happening in New Brunswick right now. Paul Zed, 
would be well positioned to tell us about that because that's the first real laboratory that will show us partly how a campaign is run in this kind of an environment. So I don't, uh, and in the short term, uh, the NDP doesn't have an interest in bringing down the government. The government may very well decide, the Liberals, that it's time for them to go. But if they do, then they have to make a case to the government, to the people of Canada, that uh, they need a majority there to, uh, to be able to govern. They have to say to Canadians why, why it is that they need a majority. What is it that they cannot get done now in a minority government that they can only do if they have a majority? And I don't see that uh, as we speak. So in the end, it'll be about numbers. Do they feel they have the numbers to go and the momentum to go? And, uh, and if I'm Aaron O'Toole, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be rushing into a campaign. I yeah, no, I, I, agree. I agree with Jean. I mean, there are a lot of broken dishes in the conservative kitchen after any leadership convention. And, uh, but on the flip side, uh, perhaps some of the base of the Conservative Party will, in fact, stay home because of the pandemic. If you're running, and that's one of the things that people are watching very carefully in New Brunswick at the moment, uh, the, the base of the Conservatives, because it tends to be more elderly rather than the Millennials or the Gen Xs or the Gen Zs, uh, may in fact stay home. And that could have an impact on the Conservative base. But generally, Jean, I agree. The the challenge that uh, that uh, uh, O'Toole is going to face is how to hold the nose, uh, you know, how to hold the uh, the conservatives to the social conservatives in the in the camp. I think they'll actually uh, hold their nose and continue to vote for O'Toole, despite the fact that he is considered a much softer approach on on social issues. And Paul, what about the liberal side of the ledger? They have a throne speech to put together and ostensibly they will pitch it to get the support of one of the opposition parties. And the New Democrats are the most obvious pick to try to attract their support for the throne speech and maybe uh, keep the throne speech sufficiently oriented around pandemic response to make it politically challenging for the conservatives to vote against it. Although mm -hmm. I think there's, there's a big chunk of the conservative base that's going to be inclined to see this government defeated come heck or high water, as they say, and, and might not even be, it might be difficult for Mr. O'Toole to justify staying home or, or, or voting for the government uh, in, in the eyes of a lot of his, his electors. But, but for, the, for the liberals who have to decide whether or not they want to be defeated or whether they want to send the prime minister over to the governor general and, and seek dissolution and force an election early, you were in parliament in the lead up to the 1997 election when you actually, you lost your seat along with a lot of liberals in Atlantic Canada in that election. And that election was triggered by Mr. Kretchen early. And he was criticized for calling an election when there was big flooding in Manitoba, I'm sure you recall. And the, mm -hmm. the country was responding to that emergency. And, and he was criticized for distracting from the emergency response by calling for an election. And of course, he ended up winning a majority in that election, but against a divided right. And now you have the prime minister facing a, a epochal generational crisis to be seen to be going to an election early. Perhaps you catch the conservatives flat-footed, but aren't they going to be concerned about being criticized for forcing us back to the polls while we're all still handling uh, this COVID situation? Th that's fair, except that what everyone recognizes, and Jean and I can both attest to, after the election is called, everybody seems to quickly forget whether or not, why has it been called? And then they just get out and campaign. 
So while, you know, they usually toss around in the media who called the election and why did they call it and how dare they call the election, that usually just fades very quickly. I think that the Liberals are obviously, they've already played their hand. Christia Freeland is the new finance minister. Uh, the budget is obviously going to be focused around spending more money, whether it's for the what's being referred to as a she session, which the recession is certainly going to affect women more than anything. And having Christia as the finance minister and the deputy prime minister focused on that, I think is going to play very well for the, uh, for the Liberal Party. And one of the challenges, of course, that O'Toole has is that their caucus does not have that strong uh, a focus on the, the core of what they want, which is to continue to control spending and cut taxes. And so that is going to be one of the challenges that, that they have. On the Jagmeet file, I think he's going to have no choice but to support some of the finances that are now being laid bare, which is, so it's just a percentage of GDP and Canada as it relates to the rest of the world is doing very well in relative terms. And so why not spend the money to protect those that are most vulnerable? Before I come back to Jean about the political calculation that the government is making, I want to bring Wayne back in on the question of preparing a throne speech and then new finance minister Christian Freeland's first budget. You, Wayne, were first the secretary of the Treasury Board and then the clerk of the Privy Council during the Harper uh, government's minority years before the 2000. 11 election. So you were involved in preparing speeches for the throne and budgets that uh, that were uh, needed uh, to get the support of at least one opposition party in order for the then conservative government to remain in office. Can you tell us what the calculations and how the process works uh, in a minority parliament situation as the public service is preparing options for the government, both for the throne speech and for a budget? Well, on the throne speech, it is very much a, um, how would I say it, a partnership between the Prime Minister's office and the Privy Council office, which is, represents the, the public service at large. So the, the, the public service would generally do a, a first draft of a speech for the throne, outlining the priorities that they see that the government would want to go forward with. And then that is taken by the prime minister's office and sometimes completely revised, completely rewritten. And it's a back and forth process uh, like that. So that will be going on right now to come down to um, an agenda that, uh, that th this government uh, will want to bring forward to, to, to parliament when the, when the house res resumes. Uh, on the budget, the budget is going to be interesting, I think, to watch, because I think if you look over the past, clearly over the past six, seven months, we've had this tremendous increase in the deficit debt, um, largely to help Canadians and businesses keep their head above water as a result of COVID. Uh, but now, as we, as we, we, we continue to, to fight the pandemic, but of course, you know, we're also looking at stimulating the economy having the economy recover. And so the question now becomes, when do we move from the, the programs, the liquidity programs to help Canadians out on a day-to-day -day basis? How do we cut, begin to cut those off? And what is the stimulus programming that the government needs to come forward with? And I think that's a, that's a huge debate. And I think it's 
you know, one that Minister Morneau and the Prime Minister maybe were maybe were not at we're not in agreement because I think the I think Minister Morneau felt that with the deficit they have accumulated, that perhaps while some sector support was was required, because uh, I think there are certain sectors that are going to need support, like the oil and gas sector or the airline sector, the tourism sector, that uh, this broad infrastructure, stimulus spending, green infrastructure and the like was something I don't think he was necessarily uh, in favor of, at least not this year. I think he was looking to, for those kind of programs next year. I think that has changed now as a result of the change in the uh, in the Minister of Finance with Mr. Freeland. I think you're going to see more broad-based stimulus spending, infrastructure spending that also includes some of their other objectives about inclusiveness, diversity, green infrastructure, and other stimulus programming. So I think you're gonna see the deficit going up uh, much more than I believe if Minister Morneau had stayed as the minister. Um, I think you're gonna see that deficit debt go up this year. Um, and I think it's it will require the conservatives to take a different approach in terms of the amount of spending, because at the end of the day, as, uh, as Jean and Paul has indicated, of course, conservatives are very much in a world of less, less spending and, uh, and, and lower taxes. And so I think they'll be very critical of the budget because of the amount of deficit and debt that we will be seeing. So Jean, you led the government of Quebec, which was a minority government going into the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis. You then went to the polls and called an election early in the in late 2008 and won a majority. And part of the argument, if I recall correctly, was that you needed a majority mandate in order to provide strong leadership for the economy and for Quebecers during a difficult economic period. Given that the Prime Minister is now facing an economic situation that is as or more dire than the one that we faced in the 2007 to 2009 period. What do you expect the government's thinking is going to be in preparing this throne speech and this budget, particularly given the, the different political dynamic potentially with the new conservative leader who's now been, uh, been elected? Well, Adam, the Liberal Party of Canada has its eyes on the polls and they're trying to read the tea leaves. And <clears throat> they're going to try to determine whether O'Toole has momentum or not, or whether his numbers are anemic and the party divided. And so it's a part of that is science and part of it is gonna be art. And if they feel that the numbers are in their favor at this point, then they'll have a speech from the throne that will be uh, something objectionable to the conservatives. They will uh, push the NDP into trying to vote against it, even the Bloc Québécois, even if they don't want to. And if that doesn't work, then Mr. Trudeau's option is to go to the governor general himself. But back to basics, what does he tell Canadians? He has to say to Canadians, you have to give me a majority because you see, the, I wanna do A, B, and C, and I can't do it in a minority. These other guys, they just won't allow me to do it. And it has to be compelling, it has to be clear. That's what I was able to do in 08, when I was in the minority situation. And back to one of the things, I took my opposition by surprise in 08. They didn't expect the campaign. And, uh, and that was a net advantage for me. In 1997, when Paul and I were part of the campaign, uh, I was leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, and the SOCONs were all with reform. 
but yet Mr. Chrétien in 1997 went to the polls early. I was gearing up and I was getting prepared on my side, but he did go faster and earlier than I had thought, and we were not as well prepared as we were hoping to be. So that's, that's all the thinking that's gonna go into this at this point. And, uh, and, and, and we'll just have to see whether they feel they have the numbers and the momentum to go. So if I'm a business leader and I'm trying to plan for the next six months of the economy and of the economic situation, which is of course a bit of a fool's errand for even the most foresighted and, and clairvoyant among us at this, at this stage, given how unpredictable things have been and continue to be, what do you think are the best expectations, Jean, of what the federal government will put in the window, at the very least for a, an offering for a potential election, if not to implement as policy in the coming session of parliament? Well, Adam, in the short term, I'll be, I'll, you know, I'll show my colors. In the short term, I think the news is not good for the business community, if only for one reason. This government looks bent on more spending. And uh, it will be spending in the area of the environment, greening the economy. It will be about social policy, which means structural spending that will go on forever. That could be more money for daycare, more money for, for a guaranteed uh, pharmacare or something like that. And, uh, and, and let's not fool ourselves. There is going to be a moment of reckoning, let's say after the next campaign, where the Minister of Finance of the day is going to sit down and put it to Canadians, the, the, the question. And that will be, how do we pay for this? This new spending and what we've already spent. And the, and the option, here are the options. An increase in the GST. There will be a, a debate about increasing taxes on capital gains, a debate about a wealth tax, debate about succession taxes. Those are the things we're looking at in the short term, Adam, and they're inescapable. Whoever the next Minister of Finance is after the next election campaign, they're going to be facing a daunting task and the business community is going to be facing an environment that uh, I think is going to be more difficult on the fiscal side than it is now. I, yeah, I, I agree 100% with you, Jean, that the, the, from a business perspective, the deficit, the debt uh, is, is uh, I don't want to say out the window, but it's certainly not in the window. Uh, it's, it's not something that they're going to be, the government will focus on. And they'll they'll continue to talk about investing in Canadian, in Canadians. There will be this whole green shift, I think, which I well remember from another election I was in, which didn't end well for <laughs> Mr. Dion. Um, and I won't tell you what we used to call green shift, but you can use your imagination. Uh, but the um, the activist uh, government, I think, is going to come out with the Liberals, and I think they'll they'll mask it with some very positive narrative like, you know, the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt uh, or fight, the fight that they're enduring as a country. And it'll be closed around uh, this agenda with uh, a focus on, on childcare and women and housing. And it's going to be very difficult for uh, someone like Jagmeet Singh not to support it. I think that will force people like uh, O'Toole and Blanchette probably, um, who's already said that he wouldn't support the, this particular prime minister, but I mean, he may revisit that, but certainly O'Toole won't be supporting this, this budget or this throne speech. But to your point, John, I think he could very easily call a snap election that catches everyone off guard 
and uh, including the civil service. And that's why they'll frame a narrative called, you know, the, the, the new deal for Canada. Now, Wayne, I, I know you're going to tell us that there is no such thing as catching the civil service off guard. It's, it's simply, <laughs> it's simply impossible. But, but Jean mentioned the, the coming reckoning that sooner or later, whether it's under this government or the next government, a minister of finance is going to have to sit down with Canadians and look us in the eye and say, we've been borrowing against our, our national wealth and our national economy for years now in order to respond to COVID-19. Those were, many of them were unimpeachably correct decisions, but we now have a massive bill to pay and we've got to dig ourselves out of this fiscal hole. Is that thinking already happening within the public service? And are those sorts of red flags being raised for government decision makers as, for example, they prepare the next throne speech and particularly the next budget? Well, it definitely is. It's, it, uh, the, the Department of Finance, if they're doing their job, uh, will be uh, putting those concerns forward that, you know, there is a, uh, like how, how large should we have the deficit of the debt go? And I think, I think this is where the, the debate has been uh, even over the last number of months within the government. Um, and I think the, the finance department has lost out on this debate. And I, as, as my colleagues have just outlined, there will be a very, um, I think a very expansive speech on the throne and, and budget. You're going to see again, another round of significant spending. So uh, I, it will not be in this budget. It will be in future budgets that um, you know, all of this is going to, there's going to, there is going to be a reckoning. We've faced this before. Now the fiscal situation with debt uh, to GDP at about 50% is not, um, is not unmanageable, um, but it's going to be higher than 50% if there's a fairly large expansionary uh, budget. Uh, and then when you add the debt of the provinces, uh, you're, you know, you're into a fairly significant debt to GDP or government spending overall in Canada. So this is going to be, a, I think, a real challenge for whoever is governing, perhaps not this fall, uh, but a year from now. So if you are a, the Liberal government, you may want to use this speech of the throne and, and budget as your, as your election, uh, your election platform, uh, because a year from now is not going to necessarily be any, any better. The only, I guess if you think the Conservatives are somewhat split, uh, allowing Parliament to resume, getting the NDP on side on the speech on the throne and therefore get, have the, the confidence vote passed, allows the Liberal government to, how would I say it, um, try and seek the underbelly of the Conservative Party by putting in, putting forward legislation that, that would be very difficult for the Conservatives, particularly for the social Conservatives. So you have, for example, the amendments to assisted suicide that need to be uh, that need to be put in place as a result of a court decision last year, and that would result in potentially expanding assisted suicide, which social conservatives are opposed to. You have a le the legislation to ban con uh, conversion therapy, which again is going to be a difficult one for uh, the new leader. So there are these uh, these issues that. Definitely, the Liberals will 
will be um, tabling legislation. And some of it's tabling legislation and bringing it back that died on the order paper. That, uh, that, that will really test this leader. And uh, so that, that, that's a rationale for continuing to govern for a period of time. But this is where, as Jean said, this is what the, what the Liberals need to do now. Uh, what, when is the best time for them to, to go to the polls? Because this budget will be another fairly expansionary budget and they simply may wanna run on that and not wait. But the one advantage of waiting is to, seek, to see if in fact, what kind of control the new conservative leader has on this party. And that's, I think, that's you, know, big... you know, Wayne, you, you, you've hit on something that's really important, though, and Jean referenced it earlier as it relates to the election in the middle of a pandemic. So if we presume that there is a second wave coming, I mean, there's lots of hot spots throughout the country. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing in New Brunswick right now is people really aren't happy about going to the polls. They really are quite negative about it. And I'm, this is just a gut reaction from watching uh, Atlantic and maritime politics. Um, I think it may bode very badly for the Higgs government. It just, it's, it's hard to know, but you know, Jean, as you asked, you know, we'll know on September 14th, how this experiment of, of the pandemic is going. Um, and if it, if it does go negatively, I think that's sort of a signal. This is the, the Petri dish for the country. Everyone has their eye on that if you're in Ottawa on the 14th of September in New Brunswick. They'll, they're going to be analyzing voter uh, turnout, uh, the demographics of the vote. I mean, they're going to run through that with a fine-tooth comb to try to figure out what it means for a federal uh, election campaign. But back to the issue of the budget. I mean. It, does Mr. Trudeau's government really want to deliver the next budget that would have to address the issue of, uh, of dealing with the deficit and debt in some way, or, or maybe he thinks they can get away with it, with it next spring and still be expansionary. But that budget is going to come. I mean, it's, it, you would not, Adam, you would not want to be the next Minister of Finance for Canada after the next general election campaign. That is going to have to be the worst job in the country. And, uh, and, and so uh, Mr. Trudeau has to have that in mind. He doesn't want to be in a, a minority government delivering that budget. He wants to be the good news Prime Minister with Christia Freeland delivering, uh, you know, new money to all sorts of new constituencies. So you know, I, I do I do think that the this budget this fall that there is a, still room to maneuver for the Liberal government on an expansionary budget because the economy um, there needs to be some stimulus in the economy we're not through the pandemic uh, so there needs to be continue to be support uh, throughout the, through the pandemic and then there may be another wave and we know there are certain sectors that are really struggling and I think. Therefore, I think Canadians would see that and, and getting women back to work. So daycare, these are all very expensive, but I think there's still room for the government to do so. But I agree with you 100 um, percent that there will be a reckoning and it's going to be a very difficult one in my whole career. And I've spent many, I, I've worked on many budgets, 
many, many deficit reduction budgets. They're all they're a lot harder budget to prepare mm. than expansionary budget, and it is going to be. An but they're going to have to raise the GST. But, but Wayne, ahead. don't you think they're going to have to raise the? Aren't they going to have to raise the GST? Like they're going to have to. They can have an expand a, a modest expending budget, but. You know, you know, Mr. Trudeau just announced two more billion dollars today to get back to school. So, um, you know, where is the money going to come from? They're going to have to raise taxes from somewhere. It's just impossible. So I, I wonder whether or not the GST is an easy place to do that. Uh, a lot of people were very critical of Mr. Harper when he reduced the GST and it's a consumer tax. It's sort of an easy place to go. Well, one one idea, and this is very much, I, I think, early thinking, but one idea I've heard from some of the insiders in Ottawa is that um, because of this huge, huge deficit that's come along as a result of the pandemic, why not take that all of that deficit spending that's pandemic-related, both federally and provincially, and put it into a separate, kind of a separate um, deficit fund that's that so you take the provincial and the federal spending on this and you say that is the COVID deficit and then you decide how are you going to pay off that and the provinces and the federal government would come together and agree and it may be an increase in the GST or HST or or whatever but you kind of look at this it's almost like the war deficit and how do we how are we going to manage that deficit now that we're out of it and so that way all levels of government then are 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 saying we need to increase these taxes in order to pay it down it's not it's actually not a bad way of going at it but it's one idea but you're right there is where canadians will have to pay for what has happened over the last six months well i find that approach wayne to be pretty brilliant i uh... You know, politically, it does give some uh, cover to uh, the federal and provincial government. The other thing about the spending, you know, the signals that the feds are sending on sending on spending is a lot of it is in areas of provincial jurisdiction. And uh, that's not going to go down well in certain areas. Daycare, uh, for example, or schools or uh, and the Trudeau government has been playing pretty loose in terms of spending in, uh, in other areas of, uh, of provincial jurisdiction. That will catch up with them also at one point. If they want to do a pharmacare program, for example, I mean, those are huge permanent uh, expenditures. And, you know, what we call structural spending, as you know, stuff that you announce that is going to go on forever, as opposed to one-time spending, which stimulates the economy and helps you uh, move it along. And, and, and that'll be something to watch very closely because if they move into these permanent programs, well, then we're going to be looking at a heavy fiscal uh, load on our shoulders, everyone's shoulders for a, a long time to come. The other, the other thing, if I could add, in 2008-9, one of the most difficult aspects of the stimulus spending that this government is now facing is the ability to uh, shut programs down. As you say, Jean, programs go on forever. But the ability to stop some of these programs that have been put in place, 
And you're seeing that play out now with the with the two thousand dollars per individual uh, for some of these other programs. You know, how do you wind those down? And that becomes very difficult. So you're going to be winding up new programs like, as you say, daycare or support to sectors or green infrastructure. But if you can't wind those other programs down, then that really exacerbates the problem of the debt and the deficit down the road. And I, I see some movement. I think they're trying to move some of, that, some of the individual programming from uh, into EI and the like. But we're going to have to, I think you have to watch that as well, because that is, governments can start things relatively easy. It's stopping things that are often very difficult. Speaking of things being difficult to stop, I, I, I want to leave some of this conversation for the next time we have you all on as more events have unfolded and as we have a throne speech uh, in the window and, and potentially an election underway. The last thing I want to do before I let you all go is put you all on the spot, if I might. I'll start with with you, Wayne, and, and then go Paul and then Jean. I want to hear from each of you when you think the next election will happen federally in Canada. Uh, just, I, I, we're not going to hold you to this, although I reserve the right to make fun of you if you're all way off. Um, but you all seem to agree in broad strokes about what the next budget is going to look like and what the political dynamics are that the government is facing. When do you think we next go to the polls as a country? Wayne, what's your best guess? Spring 2021. All right. That's one for the spring. Paul? I'm 100% with Wayne. Spring 2021. It's, all right. Uh, it's a uh, uh, late, late April call. Okay. Jean? Well, I'm the guy who predicted Hillary Clinton would get elected. In the <laughs> you were the only guy who predicted that? I, I'm pretty sure there were a couple of us in that, uh, in that camp, Jean. A few days ago, I predicted that, that Peter McKay would be leader of the Conservative Party. So, you know, I'm the last guy you want to ask that question to. I'm going to go, I'll be the outlier, December uh, 2020. All right. Well, we'll find out. Thank you all very much for your time. This has been a fantastic discussion and it won't be the last time we have you all on, but, uh, but thank you again for your insight and for participating in our conversation. Jean Wayne. Thanks, Paul, Adam. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Wayne. Paul, Thanks, Adam. Jean Charest is a former premier of Quebec, a former federal cabinet minister, and a former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada. Wayne Wouters is a former clerk of the Privy Council and head of the Federal Public Service, and Paul Zed is a former member of Parliament and Parliamentary Secretary. This has been another episode of Law in the Time of COVID-19. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. We also hope you'll send us your suggestions for future episodes. We want to talk about what you want to hear about. You can reach me on Twitter at, at Adam Goldenberg, or by email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca. Pour plus de contenu de McCarthy Tétro, ne manquez pas notre balado, Le droit au temps de la COVID-19, animé par ma collègue Christelle Chevalier. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by Chloe Thomas and edited by Chloe Thomas, Abby Stafford, and Miriam Veilleux. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, Tommy Barbieri, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramertz, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tetro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. 
Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 hub for business leaders, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please wash your hands.